0: to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. I'm obviously excited to get this interview going with my hero, uh, my father, Dr. Cleveland Sellers. Uh, My dad is an amazing individual who served in SNCC. And today we're having him on to uh, actually give a SNCC perspective on uh, C.T. Vivian and John Lewis. And so I'm really, really excited about just celebrating their lives with my dad today. But before... I do, I wanted to talk a bit about Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her response this week to Florida Congressman Ted Yoho. By the way, all week I've been calling him Ted Yayo uh, in, in uh, memory, um, not memory because he's not passed away, but remembering my rapper uh, Tony Yayo. So if I say ye- Yayo this morning, you know I'm talking about Yoho. Uh, but in case you missed it after a heated exchange this week between AOC and Yoho, Uh, Yoho reportedly called the congressman, quote, a fucking bitch. Now, after his half-assed apology on the House floor, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez gave what I believe is probably one of the more memorable speeches I've heard from a member of Congress. Here's the first part of that clip that I want to share.
1: I walked back out, and there were reporters in the front of the Capitol. And in front of reporters, Representative Yoho called me, and I quote, a fucking bitch. Bitch. These are the words that Representative Yoho levied against a congresswoman. The congresswoman that not only represents New York's 14th Congressional District, but every congresswoman and every woman in this country. Because all of us have had to deal with this in some form, some way, some shape, at some point in our lives. And I wanna be clear that Representative Yoho's comments were not deeply hurtful or piercing to me, because I have worked a working class job. I have waited tables in restaurants. I have ridden the subway. I have walked the streets in New York City. And this kind of language is not new. I have encountered words uttered by Mr. Yoho, and men uttering the same words as Mr. Yoho while I was being harassed in restaurants. I have tossed men out of bars that have used language like Mr. Yoho's. And I have encountered this type of harassment riding the subway in New York City. This is not new. And that is the problem. Mr. Yoho was not alone. He was walking shoulder to shoulder with Representative Roger Williams. And that's when we start to see that this issue is not about one incident. It is cultural. It is a culture of lack of impunity, of accepting of violence and violent language against women, and an entire structure of power that supports that.
0: So today's note is to men. Not just men with wives and daughters Because quite honestly You shouldn't need to have to have a daughter or wife To not be an asshole to women Who didn't give birth to you Or who have children with Or who conceived you And Congresswoman AOC made as clear as anyone I've ever heard make clear We don't need to actually have to have women in our lives To not be trash humans Here's another clip from her amazing speech
1: But what I do have issue with is using women, our wives and daughters as shields and excuses for poor behavior. Mr. Yoho mentioned that he has a wife and two daughters. I am two years younger than Mr. Yoho's youngest daughter. I am someone's daughter too. My father, thankfully, is not alive to see how Mr. Yoho treated his daughter. My mother got to see Mr. Yoho's disrespect on the floor of this house towards me on television. And I am here because I have to show my parents that I am their daughter and that they did not raise me to accept abuse from men.
0: Now. Obviously, not using abusive language is a given, but far too many of us do it. Far too many of us have men in our lives who we don't hold accountable for their unacceptable behavior towards women. And far too many of us, which I'll include myself in this number, haven't always used the opportunities and platforms that we have to elevate the voices and concerns of women. I try to do that here with this podcast as much as possible, but I can always do more. It's not enough to say we value women or to post the Girl Dad hashtag, but to leverage our privilege as men to not only support women in every opportunity that presents itself, but also call out the bullshit from men and sometimes even other women that doesn't honor the dignity and the lived experiences of women around the world. Last week, I had the honor of hosting my friend, Secretary Hillary Clinton, on this podcast. And while I... Try not to read my Instagram comments. Time and again, I saw comments that reminded me while we're stuck with the person in the White House we have now because this country hates powerful women who have this shit together. And Ted Yeho, Yoho, told you. And his colleague, Roger Williams, who stood by and watched Ted Yeho do this are further proof that men have a long way to go in meeting the dignity that women show every day in having to deal with us. So to Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, thank you. My daughters will both hear your speech, and I can tell you my wife appreciated every word of it. And for every man, take heed of what Congresswoman said, and we'll make her speech available fully on the Ringo website. It's required listening. Now let's get to today's interview honoring the lives of Congressman John Lewis and Reverend C.T. Vivian.
2: See website for details.
0: So this is a very special show where we get to talk to a civil rights legend and my hero, my father, Cleveland Sellers, today. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Bukari Sellers Podcast, Dad.
3: (laughs) Pleasure to be here today. Yes.
0: Yeah. And I know that we've had a very difficult uh, last few days. Today's show, we are trying to honor both John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. And people forget it was just, uh, even within the last hundred days, we also lost Reverend Joseph Lowry. It seems like many of our heroes uh, are leaving this earth. And so um before...
3: they had one other, and that's Connie Curry, advisor for SNCC for several years, and still a part of the SNCC Legacy Project.
0: So we have Connie Curry today, we have Joseph Lowry, we have C.T. Vivian and John Lewis, and we will try to do... Uh, this show in the memory of all of those that we've lost. And we're actually, I usually don't tell people the date that we're taping, but we're actually taping on July 25th. And that's an important day because this would have been Emmett Till's 79th birthday. Um, yes. Emmett Till was just a year younger than John Lewis, a year younger than Jim Clyburn uh, when he was brutally uh, he was brutally murdered and, and tossed into a river. And that was the start of your activism, was it not?
3: Absolutely. That's the... Uh the kind of event that led many of us to question the segregation and discrimination and the oppression that uh, we as African Americans in a segregated society was still uh, going through. And so Emmett Till was uh, about our age. And we, I I think, collectively decided that that would be an issue that would be a generational issue that we had to find a remedy to? How do you respond to that kind of event, that kind of incident? And many of us decided that we must find some way to change a society that discriminated, change a society that allow kids to be murdered because of the color of their skin and be discriminated because of the color of their skin. And also the Emmett Till murder comes one year after the Brown versus Board of Education. So, how do you begin to implement the Supreme Court decision of segregation was uh, separate and unequal? So, they were pushing for the equality in, in education. So <laughs> that was ni- that was
0: 1955, correct?
3: 1955. Yes. And mm-hmm. how did
0: you how did you find out about the death of Emmett Till? Talk, walk us through that moment when you saw that picture and you heard of his lynching.
3: Uh, we received uh, two black publications. And one was the Jet Magazine, and the other one was Light, I mean uh, Ebony Magazine. On the cover of Ebony Magazine, mm-hmm. they had a picture of the distorted and lifeless head. Of, of Emmett Till. It, it, it didn't look like a person. It looked like some kind of Star Wars kind of creature. And uh, it was so horrific that, uh, you know, I, I took a copy of the book to school with me and, and our teachers allowed us to discuss what, what happened and all the details of what went on with Emmett Till. And we found out that it had to do with an alleged violation of the what we call uh, segregated, segregation etiquettes. And that was to have some kind of communication with, with a white woman, for a black male to do that. Uh, this is the consequences of that kind of infraction. And uh, the question was, was that it seemed to be so unequal. How do we begin to balance it? And then the, the court case came up shortly after that and uh, the jury stayed in for some, I I guess, about 45 minutes. And they started out, and then somebody told them that it was too quick, that they needed to stay a little while longer, because their position was simply that no white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, should be convicted of, of killing a Black person, and certainly not charged with murder. And so they exonerated those two people. So we had a... The issue of the justice system and how do you make the justice system fair? It's the same question that we ask now. And uh, during that particular period, during the segregation period, a white person could auto- almost automatically take on the role of a police, and so he has had the, the jurisdiction and the ability to take someone's life and use the same argument that that is used now, and that is. I was threatened. My life was threatened. And therefore, they are exonerated in most instances. And it also is the ending point. I mean, um, the lynchings had subsided at that point, but it was still a period in which lynchings were still uh, going on in places around the country.
0: Let me ask you this, because that that eerily reminds, it remind a lot of people of Ahmaud Aubrey. how, you know, these white folk just took the, judge, jury, and executioner into their own hands, um, sure. and how you have two different prosecutors who looked at that case and said, this is not anything. And it, there was no arrest, not because there wasn't a video, but until we saw the video. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about today in particular is the legacy of SNCC. Uh, you know, first, what is SNCC? You know, we, we got a lot of people who don't even understand, black and white folk, who don't understand Snick. Don't understand its role in the constellation of civil rights movements. You had SNCC, you had CORE, you had SELC, uh, you had A Philip Randolph in the labor movement. So, what was SNCC? How did you get involved in it, and uh, what role did it play in the larger constellation of the civil rights movement? Give me your your, what is it? Your survey of civil rights history (laughs) one on one. Give me that one on one class.
3: Well, I'm gonna try to give it to you, and I'm gonna try to uh, give it to you in pieces so that I'm not taking up too much time, concentrating on things that should not be concentrated on. SNCC comes out of that uh, Emmett Till generation and uh, students, young people were were trying to find ways in which they could actually have an active role in combating and changing a system that would uh, find two people who have essentially confessed to the killing of a young boy and he's exonerated, so how do you balance the woman and the scales? How do you make it so that equal justice is meted out to black kids, adults, whomever, or whatever or people of color? how do you how do you uh, develop that? and so we we talked about different kinds of ways that you could could re- respond to that. One of the the ways that people had thought maybe was to go down and, and do something to the uh, to the perpetrators of this, this crime. And, uh, you know, the teachers would kind of steer us into, now what does that solve? I mean, have you really solved the issue of injustice meted out by the courts and the system that we fit in? And the answer to that was no. So we had to go further than that. And so we were encouraged at that point to go out and find our way, find our footprints in the sand, and and follow those and lead out to finding ways in which we could bring about change and end the kind of violent, recalcitrant uh, violence in Mississippi, where it was not against the law for a white person to shoot and murder a a black person. But it sometimes is more comforting when we understand that the segregate, what, what I call segregation's etiquettes, there were certain ways in which you were supposed to respond. If I were a black person in Mississippi and I was walking down the sidewalks in in Mississippi, like downtown Mississippi, it'd probably be wooden sidewalks, I had two options. One option was to step off the sidewalk altogether and let the white group pass. If I were to speak to the group, I would speak to them, but I had to have my eyes at an angle that actually looked at the feet. I couldn't make eye-to-eye contact because eye-to-eye contact was considered to be belligerent. And in Mississippi, you could be arrested because the laws on the books were so crazy and idiotic that they didn't make any sense. You could have eye rape in Mississippi. If you looked at a white woman the wrong way, You could be tried for that and actually spend time in the notorious Potchman penitentiary. If I were to go to a white family's home, under no circumstances would I go to the front door. I would always have to go around to the back door and knock on the back door and wait on them to come out and speak to me. But uh, those were the kinds of laws we talk about. We talk about the the discrimination in public facilities and, and those kinds of things but there was a code of what we call etiquette that black children and adults had to follow. Now, let's say that that family had a child along with them. I was supposed to say, Miss Jane or whomever, and they didn't have to respond to me at all. They could call me Coon or Buzzard or whatever. A buck, or whatever they chose to call me. And usually it was the N word. That's the way you would be referred to. And you had no response to that. You just went on and did that kind of thing. But she could be three years old. And I had to use a title in order to address her. If if not, I was not addressing her appropriately. And I could end up in jail, uh, beaten up, uh, dragged through the streets somewhere in Mississippi. So once you understand how pervasive and terrible and inhumane, the kind of oppression that went along with segregation and the kind of racism that we were living through during that period of time, then you begin to understand why it was so important that we began to talk about seriously picking up with the abolitionists and the, and the people who fought against the black codes and segregation and the NAACP and the uh, evolution of those kinds of organizations, and then the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in court. But we kind of began to get involved in the school desegregation process. So kids like Ruby Bridges was a person who in 1960 went to New Orleans and and tried to desegregate the schools in New Orleans. And she was uh, by the courts, that she could go to elementary school in New Orleans. But when she got there, there was a mob and it was a riot in downtown New Orleans. And in that riot, they were riding to persuade black folk that they didn't need to file legal petitions in order for them to get into schools. But there were many children all over the country that were plaintiffs, in the petitions that desegregated the schools. Ruby Bridges ended up going to that school. The parents in the classrooms that she was assigned to pulled all of their children out. She went to class and to school for two years with no one in the class but her. But the first day she went, it took three U.S. Marshals to stand around her to protect her to get into the school, and that's the way the school year went. And it's the same thing you have in Little Rock Central uh, with the Little Rock Nine down there. But that was a part of the, the kind of, of commitment we had to make. So it was, it was a tough time in that period, 1954. It was right after the Montgomery Bus Boycott. And it was a success. And we learned some techniques and tactics out of that. Uh, We also learned about a uh, new uh, civil rights leader that was beginning to emerge with the notion of nonviolence and nonviolent direct action, and they began to formulate that and then put together the SCLC uh, in 1957. One of the people who went with the, um, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference early on was a woman by the name of Ella Baker. And she was the program director for the the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And all of the other members were ministers, but they were all black ministers and they were all male. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't take long for Ella Baker to, to recognize that she was not very well respected or accepted. And she decided to take advantage of some funds that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference had. And after the sit-ins had started all over America, starting with the four young men in, at A&T State, State University, a uh, and State College at that point.
0: February 1st, 1960. The sit-ins.
3: Between February 1st, 1960 and uh, April 16, 1960s, there were 50,000 students, black and white, that had been arrested as a result of their participation in the sit-ins. And so Ella Baker said it's time to bring those students together and begin to talk about how we move and how we bring about change, and how the students had a, a more radical way, more progressive way, deeper change, and that uh, she was able to borrow 800 dollars from this Dr. King in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And she brought the students together at her alma mater, Shaw University, HBCU in Raleigh, North Carolina. And they formed, at that particular conference in April, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And we know some of the the people who ended up being chairs of the organization. We just heard a lot about John Lewis recently. And John Lewis left a tremendous legacy in the civil rights Uh, community and and in the civil rights movement because he was so daring and he was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to to take those beatings and, and all of that and get those arrests in because that created additional tension. And in order to change, sometimes you had to create tensions so that the people who wanted to see a small D democracy... Operate and exist; they would be able to see that these were young people who were willing to risk their lives to make sure that democracy became democracy.
0: Let me ask you a question real quick: what's the what's your earliest memory of John Lewis? Um, but actually, let's back up. Before that, I know that you've lost a lot of friends in the movement. Um, yes, Marion Barry, Stokely Julian, mm-hmm. just. Three of my favorites and three people, Uncle Mary and Uncle Stokely, Uncle Julian, who mm-hmm. were a part of my village as I was being raised. What was your initial reaction to the news about John Lewis and C.T. Vivian transitioning on the same day? And then I want to know what were your earliest and fondest memories of them both? Uh, you know, what role was John Lewis in, in SNCC and what role was C.T. Vivian in SELC as one of King's advisors?
3: Okay. Okay. Um... My earliest memory of John is uh, back about 1962, when I uh, took a group of uh, of high school students from Voorhees High School up to Rock Hill. And we went to Rock Hill because we wanted to see the Friendship Nine, and they were having demonstrations. That's where the JL Nobel actually emerges from that. And there were four Snickers over there uh, Charles Jones, Charles Sherrod, Ruby Dares Robinson, and uh, Diane Nash.
0: Diane Nash, okay. I was, I was gonna guess Diane Nash. Okay, go ahead. Yeah.
3: And, uh, <laughs> I wanted to just say that you can't separate Snick from women and progressive women, and you know, because. Uh, if you do that, you make a tragic mistake, because my thing has always been that women were the decisive force inside of SNCC a lot of times. And, and that, that's important to, for us to know. And they play major roles in SNCC. Uh, but anyhow, that was the first time because they talked about the chairman of, um, of that organization, who was at that point Charles McDo. But they were talking about this young, young person, and that it looked like Charles was going to step down after one year, Marion Barry stepped down after one year, and uh, that new person was going to be John Lewis. And they were talking about his battle stars, that he had been in demonstrations in Danville, Virginia. He had been in demonstrations in Cambridge, Maryland. He had been in demonstrations all over the place, Alabama, and Albany, Georgia, and everywhere else. So they were talking about the kind of commitment and the dedication, the kind of fire in your belly that SNCC people had. And that set the tone for what it was that uh, the members of SNCC, and and we're talking about at this point, SNCC is no larger than about 30 people. (laughs) And probably none of them were paid. So you have to think about that, the sacrifices of salary and all those kinds of things that went along with that. And Julian ended up, being uh, at one point the kind of elderman in SNCC because she had a family and he had four children, and you know nine dollars and sixty four cent a week don't go very far. Uh,
0: and, and I don't and know how y'all did that, man.
3: We did, not but it was <laughs> it was a commitment of love, and that's what it was. It was our service, our duty, our responsibility. We were in a war, a war to win our dignity, pride, and humanity. A war to Uh, rescue and ensure democracy. And again, the small D. Uh,
0: Talk to me uh, about C.T. Vivian.
3: C.T. Vivian was the person, let let me move, just try to move a little bit parallel to to what we were talking about just then and the the sit-ins and the formation of SNCC as an organization. When um, SCLC gave Ella Baker the funds, they were talking about how do you organize young people, students. And so Ella Baker said, well, first thing you do is pull these that are making the commitment and showing you some integrity and interest in it. Let's pull them together. And then they can be an organization or wing of some of the other established organizations. So SCLC was under the impression that it was going to be the, the youth wing of SCLC, SNCC was, and Ella Baker at the first meeting started talking about the kind of organization that SNCC needed to be, the the parameters, and she said that we need to be about the principles of fighting for those things which are universally needed and desired by ordinary citizens, local people, the grassroots. And those things were justice and equality and housing and healthcare. You saw those signs at the march on Washington, where it defined what the fight was all about. The end to police brutality was on that, even back in 1963 with the march on with the march on Washington. Well, when uh, Dr. King figured out that it wasn't going to be an affiliate with the SCLC. C.T. Vivian decided, and he might've been authorized by uh, Dr. King, he must've been authorized by Dr. King to be the liaison between SNCC and Dr. King. And C.T. Vivian was the person who recruited a number of SNCC people to come into the organizations. He got uh, Willie Ricks, of yeah, who uh, spoke black power. He got him out of Chattanooga and he brought him to Atlanta and he he brought him over to the SNCC office so he could get started there. Now I'm not I'm not going to tell you there wasn't sharing because there was sharing because Bevel goes from SNCC over to SCLC, so does um, John Lafayette. That. Yeah. And then there was a time when when John was toying with the idea of going back to SCLC, and right after the. Uh, anti-war movement, anti-war uh, statement was made by SNCC. It was the first in the civil rights movement, first in, the, in any kind of political movement in America that said, uh, hell no, we're not going because uh, we saw the war as being very similar in terms of the Vietnamese as being very similar to our struggle for democracy in America. And that we took the war frontage and Mississippi and Alabama and South Carolina, as opposed to going 3,000 miles to claim the fight for uh, democracy for another group of people.
0: And you were arrested. You were arrested for not going to Vietnam the first time you were arrested, correct?
3: I was arrested. I don't have as many arrests as John. (laughs) I have uh, seven arrests, and all of them are related to civil rights, every single one of them. And I haven't had a trial that has produced anything. For an example, I got uh, arrested for Vietnam, uh, refusing induction into the military service. But that comes after I had filed suits of discrimination on the Selective Service System in both Georgia and South Carolina. My contention was, was that all of the recruitment stations and the draft boards were all white. There were no blacks. But in Georgia and Alabama, the largest portion of those they were recruiting to go into the military were, in fact, African-Americans. And they were on the front line and they were disproportionately dying in the Vietnam War. So my thing was, well, why don't we continue to work here and get things straightened out here so we don't have to worry about this kind of discrimination going on? And uh, the judge said no and gave me, uh, sentenced me and to go. But I got The case got overturned alongside of uh, Muhammad Ali's case, which uh, the two attorneys, his and mine, Howard Moore being my attorney, worked out an arrangement where they were going to ask for all of the wiretap uh, issues that were going on. And the reason for that was, was that the U.S. was secretly wiretapping Foreign countries, and they didn't want the foreign countries to know that they were wiretapping, so they wouldn't release the uh, the wiretaps. When they wiretapped me, I might have been on the phone with somebody from from Africa, you know, uh, Zimbabwe uh, South or South cu- Africa or Cuba. <laughs> or Cuba, yeah, and uh, they just said that they weren't going to release that, and so they let both of us go. I appreciated that and they didn't have a case in the beginning because I had a doctor's excuse saying that I had a murmur in my heart and that I should not be in that kind of combat situation.
0: Let me get back to, I want to, let me, let me circle back to John Lewis real quick. Cause I want to know why did John Lewis leave SNCC in 1966 and why was he replaced by uh, your good friend Stokely Carmichael?
3: Well, um, John Lewis had uh, been involved for a long period of time, but let me just finish up with with C.T. Vivian. C.T. Vivian was always a good friend. And even though the press had made this division between SNCC and SCLC, that's not the case. Uh, Many of us who were in leadership positions in and around SNCC also had relationships with Dr. King and all. Dr. King was a a, a dear friend of mine, he was very supportive of my going, my, my refusing induction into the military. He acted as my conscientious objector advisor. Uh, he got some old preachers in, uh, in Atlanta to look out and see if they could figure out whether or not they could uh, become a juror in my trial in, in Atlanta. And uh, I mean, he was just he was just very supportive during that particular period of time. And that we had a a, a pretty good time in our Selma to Montgomery and at the Mississippi Meredith March. We spent a lot of time together talking about family and and friends and and what our work has been, our sacrifices and all that. But so CT was always kind of like the kind of radical inside of of, uh, SCLC. And so he was the go-to guy for us. That if we wanted to do things like we wanted to impact Dr. King on the Vietnam War, and we raised the question about a preacher supporting a war, that that was contradictory. And that peace and justice and life were the kinds of things that that we thought was the focal point and should be the focal point for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. In 1966, uh, SNCC came up with a statement against the war in Vietnam, and it was sparked by the killing of one of the SNCC members in Alabama, in Tuskegee, a young man from Tuskegee named Sammy Young. Mm -hmm. Sammy Young had won a uh, Purple Heart for getting injured during the, the Bay of Pigs kind of operation down there. So he was a sailor came back, went to school and joined SNCC and began to do voter registration work. And so that could cost you your life and we always knew that. So we'll go back and pick up on, on John. John was you know, notorious for stepping out and stepping onto the pages of history. When the uh, Freedom Rides were, the bus was burned in Anniston, Alabama, The Congress of Racial Equality and the Kennedy administration said, y'all need to hold up on those freedom rides. They're perpetrating too much violence. And the violence was toward the freedom riders. (laughs) So when uh, the uh, students found out that there was another bus leaving Birmingham to go to Jackson, they all got in cars and they drove down to Birmingham to get on that bus to ride out. And John was John was on that bus, and uh, John got beaten while another guy, a white guy, got beaten so bad that he took most of his adult life trying to recuperate from the, the massive whipping that he got. But John got beat on the head again, and that's, that's what we had happen to John over a period of time, just the beatings. And this was before the Selma the, uh, the Montgomery March where John got bludgeoned by and and run over by the horses and the clubs and the billy sticks and all that that they were using, tear gas and et cetera. So that's the way we looked at him. And he was a a fine organizer. He could go into those communities and have a a rally and motivate people. Because one of the things that happened with us, many of us youngsters at 18, 17, 16 years old and older, was to go on a demonstration, all we had to do is make sure that we were had our toothbrush and all that kind of stuff. And then we went on out and whatever happened, happened. But it happened to us. When we got to Mississippi in the summer of 1964, and this is after the sit-ins and after the direct action tactics had kind of fulfilled their usefulness. And uh, we saw what happened in Birmingham in terms of the, uh, the water holes and the dogs and all that kind of stuff that we knew that we had to move the movement tactically and strategically to another level. And one of the things we understood tactically is, is that when we went to organize voter registration drives in Mississippi, the summer of 1964, it was called the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project. We had 800 students from all over the country. We had about 100 nurses and doctors. We had about 300 attorneys. We all conversed on Mississippi, and we began to see if we could find a way to open up that state. We had to go out and tell people and ask people to join the movement. And we also wanted to get them to try to register to vote. Now, we knew there were going to be consequences and sacrifices that would have to be made in order for them to try to register to vote. The least of those were, they're gonna get put out of their house before they get back home, or they would lose their jobs. But you could get arrested, you could get beaten, and you could get killed. So now, here we are, 17 and 18-year-olds, we have to figure out how we adjust to knowing that we put people in harm's way, including children and all. And most people don't think about that. When they think about the movement and all that kind of stuff, they're thinking about the glory and the people who are out there speaking and all that kind of stuff. But for you as an individual, somebody is going to come up and ask you about your putting people in a position where they can be harmed. And that's what people start saying to Dr. King about the children in Birmingham. He said these children getting arrested, they're getting beat up, they're getting hit by the fire hoses and all those kinds of things. You shouldn't put kids in that kind of position. But what Dr. King was able to point out is, is that young people have a social consciousness at an earlier age. I mean, that's that's just the reality. Ruby Bridges didn't understand what was going on initially, But before she got to second and third grade, she understood what had transpired and what role she had played. And so, you know, it does sometimes have negative consequences, but it's a reality. It's something that we have to do. You have to work on humanity and mankind, and you have to lift it up when you get the opportunity. And it's not always the opportunity. It's not always there. Sometimes you have to create the opportunity to do that kind of thing. And so we went into Mississippi with the idea that we were going to have people register to vote. And we had what was called Freedom Day. And everybody in that county would come down to the courthouse and they would line up because the process would be like the elections are now, where you have people out there seven, eight hours. That's how it would be to register to vote. Oh, wow. And then many of them, when they got back, you would have to work with them to see if you could find a place for them to stay. And the community would help out with that. And and find a, no, a new job and and probably clothing for the for the kids and all that kind of stuff was a part of of uh, getting people to step onto the pages of history. And I have to put that in there because people think that you have uh, you just going through doing stuff and you're doing it for your own self. Ella Baker, Bide Rustin, Bob Moses were the key people who taught us about being self-effacing taught us about how it was the grassroots, how it was the local people that we had to be concerned about and not ourselves and our own egos. We had to park our egos at the door. So that was the attitude we took. So you will find that people are around at different times and they didn't go to the microphone because there were people who were skilled at doing that. Julian Bond was one of those people. And some people would bring the skills that they had to the movement. Willie Ricks could start a rally with young people. I don't care if they were just coming out of church. He could get them all around and have them down to the courthouse in, in 30 minutes. But that's the, that's the skill and talents that he had. And so we utilized those. So we knew that if we had to get young people to get engaged and involved, you call in Willie Ricks and you say, they're over there. go go and do your job. And it becomes very important for you to begin to find out what your niche is and people begin to praise you based on what you're putting in. And that's, uh, that's usually referred to as putting your body in the movement. You had to put your body in the movement. That's the position that we have in the organization. Now, in 1964, the end of 1964, SCLC is talking about having a march from Selma to Montgomery. And and one of the bases upon which they were doing that is is that SNCC had had people in uh, Selma since 1962. And they were moving along with desegregation and then the right to vote. And so it was right for people to get involved, like the teachers in Selma, they were already organized and all of them were organized by SNCC. But then SCLC came in and they brought a C.T. Vivian. Uh, he is talking to, a, to the sheriff and the sheriff said, I told you to shut your mouth. And before C.T. could get anything else out of his mouth, the sheriff hit him across the lips with the club. And he was bleeding all out there. And he said, I ain't scared of you. Said, but you're going to have to do right. This is a democracy. And you're going to have to act like this is a democracy. You don't do things on your own. And all that's on on, on, on video. And now it's a part of the legacy of Selma and the... Edmund Pettus Bridge confrontation.
0: Let me ask you two, two questions I, before we I get you.
3: Now, we want, we work oh, yeah.
0: You. Yeah. Can you get, get to the, yeah. answer the we question? Because I got two more questions. We got it. The show has to stop it a little while. So let me answer the question about 66. And then let I have two more questions.
3: Get, let me go ahead and get <laughs> John in. All right. John said that he wanted SNCC to be a part of that march. And the SNCC said No that They didn't want to be a part of the march from uh, Montgomery to uh, to um, Selma. Selma. No, Selma to Montgomery. Selma
0: to Montgomery. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So John said that it was in Alabama, and he was from Alabama, and he hadn't done you know very much in Alabama, and that he wanted to march. And so the organization was set up on a a, a kind of um, Quaker style, in which you came to consensus about what you do. Plus, we had the, the, the position in there about leadership roles, that you don't have any permanent leadership role in SNCC. You, you are elected each year by the body of SNCC. So John said, well, if I can't do it as the chairman of SNCC, then I want to do it independently. So I'll step out of SNCC for a minute and I'll be involved in that march. And then we'll go head on from there. So um, when the march came, SNCC stayed away from the march. We had a, a convention of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. That's the party that challenged the Democratic Party to open up at the 90-city convention. And uh, we got a call at 2 o'clock. And McCall said that John Lewis had been beaten. He uh, was being airlifted out of Selma to Boston. They were taking him to a, a hospital where they had some civil rights doctors up there. And that he, he had a concussion. They didn't know how serious it was, but it seemed to be very serious. And that they wanted us to bring as many Snickers to Selma uh, within the next hour. And so we packed up and we had five cars and a motorcycle and uh, we all went to Selma, Alabama. We met in Selma, and uh, we got into our areas that we were going to be staying, and uh, we were on the streets early the next morning over at the church there in Selma, trying to see what was going to be the next action and next move. So when John went out on that march, if you look at the film, there are two people right behind John. One is uh, Bob Mance, mm-hmm. and the other guy is Willie Brown. And uh, they were Snickers. One was the printer, and the other one was an organizer that would eventually go on to organize in, uh, in Lowndes County, Alabama. And so we had him kind of covered, but we didn't expect the thing that happened on the bridge to happen like that. We thought that because it was going to be on TV and all that kind of stuff, that the the state of Alabama would not allow that kind of thing to happen. It did happen, and we had no choice but to come in and try to assist with the ending of that march. So that was an issue where John went against the entire organization to march in Alabama as an individual. That raised some questions about being, you know, in tune with where the group was actually going. And then, when the march was over, uh, Stokely and a couple of other people started organizing the independent organizations, the Lawrence County Freedom Organization, mm-hmm. Green County, Dallas County, and there's another, I think it's Wilcox County. They started putting, and they, they found out from our research department that you could actually put a, an independent political party uh, in that county. You didn't have to organize a whole state party, you could do it by county. And so we were gonna go county to county in the black belt area and build those up and get blacks to run for office in those counties and kind of have these kind of enclaves that could ensure us that. Doug Jones, when he ran for-
0: United States um, Senate.
3: Yeah, the, the counties that came in last with the largest number of minority voters were those black Panther counties.
0: Let me ask you let me ask you these three questions. I'm gonna try to get through these three questions before we got to get out of here. We are running up on an hour and you, as I know, take your time and and making sure we get thorough answers out.
3: Yes, Uh, got to get thorough answers.
0: So, look, uh, I want you to talk briefly about the 1986 Bond Lewis race for Congress. Um, Whose side were you on? How that made you feel as a former snicker? And did they ever, way they ever, I know that was a very rough and tumble race for the fifth congressional district. Did they ever make amends? And then I got a question about the legacy of SNCC.
3: All right. Let me just say that Stokely had talked about a program going into that meeting in, in Nashville in 66. And uh, he had talked about creating these cells across Watts and Harlem and those kind of places, you still could organize that kind of unit and have control of that kind of unit. I'm talking about political control, control, because we were now talking about both identity, and we were talking about the political consequences of having the right to vote. And so we thought that you had to have some sacred responsibilities in regards to that. Have some sacred responsibilities in regards to that. So John ran as the candidate for chair, and
0: um, oh, I Iraq- talking about. I'm talking about the 86 campaign for...
3: I, I got the 86. we okay. right. We're gonna get to John before we get to 86. So the meeting kept talking, and people kept talking about the direction of SNCC, that we had made a statement against the war in v- Vietnam. Uh, we were getting closer to talking about black power with this new independent bloc. And uh, Worth Long came in the meeting after the first election took place, and said that he saw some some faults with how we had processed that whole thing, and that he said that the meeting needed to be overturned, and we needed to start the elections over again. And he said everybody needs to just step down, and if everybody's clear, they'll be able to go. And I think John took a a negative political turn. Ruby Rubidar stepped down, I stepped down, and John said he wasn't going nowhere. And people were saying, well, John, what is it about this position that you don't want to step down? And I think that after that, the people said, okay, well, John, you need to step down, you need to think about it, you need to step down, and if you are the person that this body selects its chairman, then you will be the chairman of SNCC. And it took so long, it took about, a, about 45 minutes to say he was going to step down. And when he stepped down, they had the elections over again. Uh, Ruby Dar's won her position back. I won mine back and- um,
0: Stokely beat and John.
3: Stokely Carmichael beat John. You know, it was, it was a democratic election, you know, and John didn't have as many votes. And what I was trying to do is set up some of the issues that were going on in regards to John. Plus, this would have been his third year as chairman. Snicket never had a chairman that long, and we didn't raise that issue very much. Now, when John, when when the position opens up in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. the congressional position, uh, Julian says that he's going to file for that position. And Julian does file for that position. And then John decides that he's going to file for that position, and John does file for that position. Now, when the campaign was going on, all of the black leadership in uh, Atlanta supported Julian. And uh, it got close to the end of the election, and John said that we need to have a a talk and so they had a talk and it was an interview and they, they were sitting at the opposite end of the table and his John's uh, campaign advisors told him to pull the question uh, and that's a, a litmus test. That's what you had to have, you had to have a litmus test. And so John asked Julian to take a drug test. And Julian looked at him. I mean, SNCC, people used to ask us, why don't you check the backgrounds on people coming into SNCC? Because they might be in the Communist Party. If they were coming to fight for the freedom of black people and the, end of the violence and oppression for black people, I don't care what they're thinking about, bring them on in. Because it's the ones who are carrying the crosses that are killing us. Yeah. And so... Union never would ask, answer that question. John knew it, because no one in SNCC would, would feel free to ask somebody something like that. That's a technical question that has been put together by the right wing and those people who oppose having black people involved in anything. That's just like the, the old thing with affirmative action. And I heard John on a more recent tape, it said if he was able to uh, uh, had an opportunity to do that over again, he wouldn't.
0: He also, if that was the case, he wouldn't have been the United States congressman from the 5th Congressional District. Right. Because that changed the entire dynamics of the race. The last question I want to ask you is that I think that people out here, this has been a healthy interview. And I, I'm going to, you know, I talked to Kaya after every interview. She, she's my producer and see you know, what, what they think about it. But I think people are learning a lot from this. It, recently, people have mischaracterized uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in relationship to SNCC and saying things like burn, baby, burn was the reason that SNCC disintegrated um, and they don't want defund the police to do something similar to um, to Black Lives Matter. Not only is that ahistorical or factually inaccurate, but just what do you think the legacy of Briefly, Daddy, briefly, what do you think the legacy of SNCC is, especially in relationship to what you're seeing now with Black Lives Matter, and even tie that into um, the relationship that BLM should have with Joe Biden, one similar to the one that you all had with President Johnson?
3: I think that uh, you have to remember it was Johnson who said to civil rights leaders that if there's something that you want, make me have to give it to you. That's, that's what he said. And that's the way politics work. It's power politics. It's not moral politics. It's, po- it's, it's power politics. And people have to come to that realization. So you have to make power decisions. Let me say that the destruction of SNCC had to do with, um, black power was not the issue that made SNCC, uh, it, it was successful. That was one of the things. A COINTELPRO and the FBI did uh, arrest and and distort and and diminish the credibility of people inside of SNCC. And they continue to do that kind of thing. So black lives have to recognize that they have to be able to be solid and solidified in order for them to move forward. Because the first thing that's going to happen is You will have all kinds of spies in there, Republican spies. You're going to have anarchist spies in there. You're going to have everybody in there trying to get in there to do those kinds of things. And the harder you work, the more they are going to undermine what it is you're doing. Now, expect a backlash. They have had a wonderful move to get forward and gain. SNCC was not about burn, the baby, burn. That was a a title and topic created by the press around Watts. That's what that was. That's when it came up. It didn't start out with riots and rebellions. We call them rebellions because they were the, 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 the voices of poor, impoverished, unhealthy people in these ghettos around the country. That's what it was. And we haven't addressed that issue yet if I had to guess where we were now in terms of history, I would put us back in around 1957. That's where we are. And that is where you begin to see new organizations coming on, and you haven't seen that movement yet. But the fact that you have Black Lives Matter organization, they need to work on organizing. Organize, organize, organize. That's what kept snake going as long as it could have gone. But you also have blacks who will come in and interrupt you and undermine you themselves. <laughs> and all you have to do, I mean, let's, let's be real about it. You know, Uncle uh, Thomas has done absolutely nothing for poor and uh, people of color. It doesn't matter because he is black. If he is black and his ideology is oppressive and uh, upper class, then you have to find somebody else to do your bidding for you. And that's the same thing that's gonna happen. Now there's gonna be a little back and forth now because the Republican Party wants there to be an issue between Black Lives Matter and the black congressmen and those kind of people. And they are trying to clear their way. They're trying to clear their way. We have said, SNCC has said to Black Lives Matter that we are very proud of it. You're coming out the same way we came out. We came out and people were telling us that we were responsible for the riots that was taking place. Uh, They told us that we were responsible for us not having legislation passed. We were responsible for running whites out of the movement and not being uh, supportive of whites who were in the movement but I risked my life to go down there to try to find Goodman, Scherner, and Cheney. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you have to look at our work and find out that we were committed and we were on the cutting edge and that that's what people don't like. They like the natural order, the natural form, and all those kinds of things. But then you have a president to come in and wreck everything in a party and, uh, you know, you'll say, okay, Well, we'll just wait until something in the system takes care of them. I hate to play that kind of game, but that is what that is. At some point, somebody has to rescue democracy. And it it looks as if it's going to take the African-American community coming together with its friends and allies, people of color all over, and the young people who know that what people are saying is absolutely nonsense. And, and all you have to do is listen to, uh, listen to, you know, the president. And the president said that when Kaepernicka kneeled on the ground, he was disrespecting the flag. Kaepernicka said nothing about the flag. Uh, black people got no sense to know that. So you got to support the brother because he is right. He is principally right. And don't let anybody forget that Dr. King was the friend of all all black folk, when he left here, he was not popular. And that's the reality of it. And especially when he went to get with those sanitation workers. Yeah. If he was opening up some businesses and you're going to have some black executives, fine and dandy. But uh, if he's working with the poor people, that's not going to help me because I'm not poor. I, even though I am poor, but I don't know it.
0: <laughs>
3: Therefore, I'll take a program, whatever it is. You know, right. uh, if he's doing the right thing, but I think we have to be smart, and we are smart. And I, I have seen the kind of kind of coming together of community, and we have to go back to the making the the community all over again. We have to build community because America destroyed all community by putting in different kinds of things, talking to young people about the individualism and materialism that. The only thing you need to be concerned about is your own individual self and making sure that you got a two-car garage and six cars in it, okay? And, And that's not what it's all about. We're talking about justice, equality, and peace. We're talking about making amends for the Emmett Till's and all the rest of the men and women since that time that have lost their lives as a result of being involved in civil rights. And so... We send John off with a, with a, a lot of love and affection. I still communicated with John. We talked, but there were a lot of people who, you know, just moved on. That's what we do. Uh, and and John, like all the rest of us, found it a kind of drop to get out of Snick. Snick was compassionate, and loving, and supportive. It was like a home. It was like a, another family to most of us. And anytime we stepped away from that. Uh, it created problems for us. Right. And right. some of us didn't recognize that, and we kind of stumbled and bungled along. And we have to, if we made some, some strange moves, then we have to go back and address those and atone for that. And that's what I think is the, is the issue right now. We got to fight, and we're going to have to uh, not be so concerned about whether or not you can get a bad press or whatever it is, because the press writes their own stories. I was looking at, and I'll end with this the uh, TV and the media have done John Lewis without having any representatives of SNCC who spent six years with John. You know, most of these other people, they just came up. Some of them weren't even born that they're talking about their friendship with John. And and there's a reason. There was one, the congresswoman from Washington was the only snicker I saw. And there are a lot of snickers around yeah. all over the place that can talk about John. I served for a year with John. I was served his last year in Snick, And so, you know, I might have a story or two to talk about John. John was a good man. Yeah. We were very proud of him and we still are proud of him.
0: I'm just thankful that we were able to. I wanted to spend some time talking about John and C.T. Vivian from a different perspective, one that the media is not necessarily talking about. And I figured there would be nobody better to talk about SNCC and share those stories than you. And of course, Dad, we'll have you back on probably before the election to talk about everything else going on in the world. But I wanted to spend some time talking about C.T. Vivian and John Lewis today.
3: Okay. well, I hope I I tried to get C.T. all the way out. But C.T. was a terrific Friend and and man. When I say friend, I'm not I'm not trying to talk about. We got a whole bunch of pictures together. I'm just talking about working in Selma from the Selma to Montgomery, and working in in uh, Mississippi and working in Atlanta and other places that we have worked together. Yeah. He was he was a, he was a tyrant. He was not a tyrant. A champion of uh, civil rights and human rights and and the identity and that's well, we, where we we're going comes. to
0: we're going to miss them all but we have to make sure that we do a better job of giving people their flowers while they're living so
3: absolutely
0: i love you dad and thank you so much man thank you for You're coming welcome.
3: on You're welcome i hope it helped you'll have to look at it
0: and make sure all right thank you